the everlasting God. What a great thought to think about our God who's everlasting. I want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to um, page 1205. The Bible's there in the seats, uh, but uh, to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, where we've been camped out for a couple of weeks. And um, I hope by now you understand that God has very clearly revealed to anybody willing to listen that there is a day coming called the day of the Lord. It's all over the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus talks about it. Uh, The day of the Lord is the single most prophesied event in the entire Old Testament concerning the end of human history. Eight different Old Testament writers, three New Testament writers, Luke, uh, Peter, and Paul, as well as the Lord, talk specifically about the day of the Lord and uh, this day that's coming. In Matthew chapter 24 and uh, verse 21, Jesus says this, "For, For there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I personally, as I try to understand end-time events, believe that those days will be shortened by the Lord coming back and uh, and enacting the Lord's judgment. And so um, back at Isaiah, let me just read again, um, just another spot. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And on and on it goes. The day of the Lord. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to suggest it's sobering. It's sobering to, to take a minute and... And, and pause and think about what God is telling us here. Our holy and our righteous, our everlasting God. And uh, there are many people who just don't want to listen to that. Just don't want to hear it. And uh, when I think about it, uh, I think, you know what? I, I haven't preached too many sermons about that over the years either. Because people don't want to really hear this. And that's one of the benefits of working your way through a book of the Bible where we, we put out in front of us what God has uh, put in his word. Um, but to avoid what God tells us is coming in the future is to miss the opportunity to ask the one really all-important question in light of what God has revealed. And it's the question that Peter asks uh, in first, uh, Second Peter chapter 3 and uh, verse 11. He says, since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people should we be? That's the all-important question. When you know what's coming in the future, the question becomes, okay, if I know that that's what's happening, what kind of people, what kind of person should I be? And then Peter answers it. He says, well, you ought to live a holy and a godly life as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt and the heat and so on and so forth. What kind of people ought we to be? The day of the Lord uh, will be initiated by the visible bodily return of Jesus. And the first thing, he will rescue those of us who belong to him, those of us who believe him from the horror of that day that's coming. Second Thessalonians tells us that those of us who are living at the time when the Lord comes will meet him in the air and will be forever together with the Lord. It's a great promise. It's, it's the rapture of the church. And, uh, but this time of judgment is detailed out for us in the book of Revelation. And I'm sure you know the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible because it details how the age of history is going to end and what's going to happen in the future. And uh, the, the consummation of history, uh, more than any other book in the Bible, the book of Revelation tells us the details. Uh, the book of Revelation was actually written 25 years later than any other book in the New Testament. Remember, it was revealed uh, to John. And the very interesting thing about the book of Revelation is that it's the only book in your Bible that's written by Jesus. You know, the title of that uh, book is um, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. It's the only book of the Bible written by Jesus, the book of Revelation, which God revealed to Jesus so that Jesus could tell John, so that John could write it down, so that you and I could have a record of this. And uh, it says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the only book of the Bible really written by Jesus. And uh, verse 3, uh, I think, is a very interesting verse. It says, blessed, blessed is the person who reads the words of this prophecy. And in spite of that promise of an extra blessing for those who read this, it's probably the least read book in your New Testament by Christians. And uh, we avoid it like the plague. And it's not the easiest book to read. And so I admit, you know, that there's a lot of, uh, you know, difficult portions to understand, but blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. And so uh, it's very important, I think, for us to understand, and we're going to just spend a little time in Revelation this morning, Lord willing, but in that book, Jesus speaks very clearly and very confidently about his ultimate victory. Someday, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. That's the promise. And Jesus is very confident in putting that out in front of anybody who's willing to listen. And uh, the day of the Lord, you know, is going to accomplish this. And the day of the Lord, you know, as we saw last week, is preceded by a sign, as I read from Isaiah. Um, the sun will turn black, the moon will turn red, the stars will fall from the sky, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, uh, the Bible says. And over against all of that darkness... Uh, the atmosphere will fill with the light of the glory of Jesus himself. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured back into his glory and uh, a couple of disciples got a view of that and Peter's like, wow, we should stay here. This is fabulous, you know. 
Well, when Jesus comes back, the, the light of his glory will fill the atmosphere against the blackness of no moon and no sun and no stars. And up against that black backdrop will come the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. What a, what a day that's going to be. And uh, Luke's gospel, he writes about this, and it's my favorite place to think about for a person who's a Christian. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive about what's happening to the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When you see these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your head. This is our day. Your redemption draws nigh. See, the world is going to have one reaction, but the Christian who's informed and who knows the scriptures is going to say, whoa, this is finally our day. How cool is this? It's everything that God has promised us right along. And there's a consistency in the scriptures about what this sign will be, and it comes always immediately after the tribulation, which is caused by Satan, the Antichrist and Satan's guy on the earth and creating all this havoc. It always comes immediately after the tribulation time and always before the day of the Lord. Now, people get this confused. You know, the Bible's very specific about having seven, the seven last years. The Bible talks very specifically about the seven, 70th week of Daniel, the seven last years divided exactly in half and so on. The first half really is... Uh, the tribulation of Satan against Israel and against the church and all those things that Revelation talks about. And then this uh, satanic figure is revealed for who he really is, demands the worship of the world, and it starts the second half. And it's in that second half, I think, when Jesus comes back, that that tribulation will be cut short, as Jesus said. Because if it kept going, there wouldn't be any survivors. And the day of the Lord comes, and the church is taken out, and the book of Revelation begins to explain, and so on and so forth. But there's also good news associated with the day of the Lord. In fact, there's great news associated, and that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. Uh, if you're in 2 Peter, uh, you'll notice that the very next verse, Peter says this, verse 13, after uh, all of this stuff that's going to happen in association, there's another thing that's going to happen that's very, very great. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, God has promised, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Which way are Christians looking? Forward, not backwards. We are looking forward. Our best days are in the future. And according to this promise that God has made, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, there's many places in the Bible that describe this future place in this future time period. And I would say to you that some of the best promises of all time in the Bible, for those of us who believe, are associated with this great future that the Bible lays out. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, just a couple pages forward, I'm sorry, chapter 21 and verse 1, you'll see that Jesus here in revealing this to John, he's, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John was able to see what's going to happen in the future. He says the same thing that Peter's telling us. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And so Peter and Jesus and John, they're all saying the same thing. Um, imagine, if you can, try to imagine what that's going to be like. 
a new heaven and a new earth. What would that really be like? Uh, I have a, a couple of... Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of passages. There's many passages, but I just wanted to read a couple of passages to describe for you a little bit what that actually is going to be like as you try to uh, imagine what it would be like to be living in a new heaven and a new earth. I'm in um, Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we read these words, the wolf will live with the lamb. You know this passage, right? It's a great promise. Someday, the wolf and the lamb, there'll still be wolves and there'll still be lambs. There'll still be kind of the world as we know it, but it'll be entirely different. And the wolf and the lamb and the, uh, will, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with a bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra. A young child will put his hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the water covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious in that day. The Lord will reach out his hand a second time and reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria and Egypt and so on and so forth. And what a great day this is going to be. Uh, Again, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 65, uh, a description. Listen to this. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Now listen. The former things will not be remembered. Sometimes people will ask, they'll say, well, you know, when, when we're in heaven, if we think back to how miserable this life was and this happened and that happened, so the former things will not be remembered. There'll be enough to occupy your mind that the former things will not be remembered. There's the promise, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought to be a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and other people live in them or plant and other people eat their food. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones, will long enjoy the works of their hands and so on and so forth. Verse um, 25 again. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. Um, They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Imagine what a new heaven and a new earth would be like. One of the most beautiful promises, you know, in in the Bible. Now, there are two words in the Greek language, uh, both of which in the English language are translated new. Two words, two different words that have two different meanings, but in English they both get translated new. So the first word is uh, neos. And uh, what it means is new in time or recent, like a new baby that just came into existence. Or it's used of um, new wine because it's this year's you know, crop and it's, it's new wine as opposed to old wine and, and so on and so forth. And so um, new with respect to origin. The other word is the word kanos, which also gets translated new. 
And kainos is a word that indicates new in quality. New in quality, okay? It's a new kind. It's something unprecedented. It's something different. It's a change in quality. I, uh, I bought our son's car to church this morning, parked it right out the front door, uh, because it's an example of this kainos kind of new. Uh, the car is a 1926 Ford. 87 years ago, that's all it was, was this little old uh, Ford Fliver. And then um, it was totally redone. And it's got, everything is new in it. It's got new brakes, new tires, new steering wheel, new gauges, new engine, new transmission, new, 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 new. Everything is new. Everything's different. It's new in the sense of different. It's still a 1926 Model T Ford. But it's new. It's different. It's renovated. It's, it's uh, regenerated, if you will. It's totally uh, renovated, completely cleaned up. The Bible says um, that uh, when, when the Lord makes the new heaven and the new earth, Kanos, uh, he's showing John that this present earth is going to be totally cleaned up from all the effects of sin. I get the impression that it's going to be like it was before Adam and Eve sinned. It's going to be a perfect world that God created before sin and the curse and death and all of those things began to mess it all up. And uh, the whole genetic structure will be perfect. We'll all live to be, you know, eight, nine hundred years old, like, you know... Um, they did in the early days, and, and so on and so forth. And so all cleaned up, the world as Adam and Eve knew it. And Jesus said, you know, he used this word kainos, and I, I just want to point it out because some people think that, you know, it's going to be totally different, but I think it's going to be the old world totally redone. Uh, when Jesus said, um, and when he instituted the Lord's Supper, you remember he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. New, meaning kainos is the word that's used there. This is the new covenant in my blood. It's still a covenant. It still defines the way people relate to God, but it's a new covenant. It's way better than the old covenant. The old covenant was the Mosaic covenant, the law. The new covenant is in Jesus' blood. It fulfills the law. Um, in the book of um, uh, Hebrews, talks about this. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says, The time is coming, to, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And uh, with the house of Judah, and it won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'm going to make with Israel. This is the new covenant. After that time, declares the Lord, I'm going to put my laws in their mind. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. No longer will a man have to teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Paul tells us in Romans, you know, that there's a time coming when all Israel will turn to Christ. And then he says this. This is the verse. He says, By calling this covenant new, Kenos, he has made the first one obsolete. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging, all of us, will soon disappear. It's a new covenant. It's new in Christ's blood. It's the fulfillment of the old covenant, but it's better than, and the old one goes out of existence. It's, uh, the word is kenos. It's a new covenant. Uh, in Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, a Christian is a new creation. Kenos, again. A Christian is a new creation. Well, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm still the old Dave DeVries, 
I'm still Dave DeVries, what I was before as a Christian, but I'm much improved. I'm not home free. I got a long ways to go, granted. But if I was still the old Dave DeVries without Christ, you would be disappointed. <laughs> right? And I'm the same with you. You're a new creation. You're still the old you, but you're a new creation. You're being made over. You still have the personality that God gave you when you were born. You still have uh, characteristics. You still have genetic makeup from your parents and yada, yada, yada. You're still you, but you're totally new. You're totally renovated. Uh, remember the 23rd Psalm. If, if the Lord gets to be your shepherd, he's going to restore your soul. He's going to get rid of the wrong thinking, the wrong feelings, the wrong choices, and he's going to restore your soul to what he made it to be. It's a great uh, thought, that what, what's being conveyed here. Uh, Peter, in um, the book of Acts, uh, Peter was preaching in uh, Acts chapter 3. And uh, here's the way uh, Peter put it in Acts chapter 3 in verse uh, uh, 19. Uh, Peter says this, uh, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood, fire, billows of smoke. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, Acts 3.19. Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God, listen, to restore everything. New heavens, new earth. To restore everything, to remake, to renovate, to regenerate, to restore everything as he promised uh, long ago. In uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus uh, actually was speaking about this time as well. And in uh, verse 28, Jesus says this. He said, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things. Jesus uses the word renewal. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones and, and so on and so forth. At the renewal. There is a future coming that's associated with this day of the Lord. A new heavens and a new earth. The ESV Bible, the English Standard Version, says in the new world. In the new world. And, and all of this is to say, this is what we're talking about in the new regeneration. So my point is just that all over the Bible is this promise that God makes to believers that someday there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I want to say for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, this is really bad news. Because everything about your identity is tied to this life including your physical life. And if you're an unbeliever and you have, you, you have to contemplate this idea that there's going to be this judgment, everything's going to be burned up, this whole idea is a huge threat to my entire identity because for an unbeliever, everything I possess, everything I've given my life to, everything is tied to this present earth. And it's all going to become nothing. But for a believer, the prospect of a new heaven and a new earth is absolutely glorious. I mean, we should be kind of looking forward, saying, I can't wait for this, because everything that brings tears and heartache and stress and anxiety is all going to be eliminated. There's not going to be any cancer in this new world. There's not going to be any death. There's not going to be any shortages, no rust, no rape, no adultery, no drunkenness, no catastrophe, no inept government. 
There's not even going to be a health plan because there's not going to be any sickness. I mean, we Christians were like, I can't wait to live in an existence like that. Do you know what Peter said? He said, it's going to be the home of righteousness. Finally, we're going to live in a place where everything's right. Where everything is done right. And people are right. And responses are right. And relationships are right. It's going to be the home of righteousness. Jesus, when he was here, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Come to this earth. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you and I, we're, the church is the, like this prelude to the world saying, listen, someday it's going to be even better than we are now. But we're the forerunners of this righteousness that uh, comes into us by the word of God and by the truth of God and by the spirit of God and so forth. And I think, how great is this going to be? Um, no stealing, no worries about. If you go back to Revelation chapter 21, um, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The holy city. Everything that, uh, when we think about this future, that's everything the Bible kind of prompts our imagination with, uh, leads us to think that all that we hate about this life will be replaced by love and by joy and peace and creativity and abundance and adventure and beauty and worship and, and all the things we like the most. And uh, this new Jerusalem, this holy city, comes down from God out of heaven, I think like a chandelier. This, this, over this new created earth, there's this holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down, sits, I think, over Jerusalem, hangs in midair, like a chandelier. And uh, it comes down from God, and you'll notice um, it comes out of heaven from God. And uh, when Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, I think this is the place he's talking about, the holy city. It'll be the capital of the new heavens and new earth. It'll be the location where God has his throne, where the Lord will be found in this new city. And uh, I, I really think when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, you know, I think this is what he was talking about. It's, it's pretty exciting when you think about it. Um, I think this is the place that Abraham was talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, when Abraham, way back in the very beginning of time, you know, said, I'm looking forward to a city that has foundations. In other words, permanence. In other words, eternal, right? Whose builder and architect is God, he says. Remember that? Abraham, it's in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm looking forward, looking forward to this great day, this great place and so forth, this new Jerusalem. And it's a spectacular city. Notice it's prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I've done hundreds of weddings. I've never had an ugly bride. Never had an ugly bride. Why is that? Well, because lots of preparation goes into that day. That's why, right? No detail is left undone. And, uh, and this city has been in process since Jesus left. He's building this place for us. And uh, every detail will be perfect. And uh, here's the really exciting thing. If you, if you have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 21. Now remember, this is written by the Lord. It's uh, revealed by the Lord. And, and so John, who's you know, the Lord's disciple, is getting all of this. And in verse 9 it says, One of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the bride of Christ? It's the church. It's us. Come, and I will show you the church in the future. I will show you the bride. I will show you the, the, the wife of the Lamb. Now listen, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That's where we're going to live. That's, that's being created for us. That's where the church is going to be found. You know, the, the church gets raptured off the earth and then it, it gets this new heaven, new earth, and the church comes back. And where are we? We're in the city. We're in the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. It's the church. It's you and me. It's the, the bride of Christ. This is where we're going to live. And, 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 you know, I think this is so exciting. Verse, verse 11, it's shown with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Jasper is literally translated diamonds. Diamond. This holy city, like a chandelier made of diamond, right, is our future abode of where we're going to be. And you begin to think about this place is going to be like a a diamond, clear as crystal. Uh, It'll be somehow translucent. Uh, Verse 11, it says, It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a a precious jewel, like diamond. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the west, three on the north, three on the south, uh, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is the abode of all the Old Testament and New Testament believers from Adam until the time that Christ takes people off the earth. This is the culmination. If we had uh, a little bit more time, I would take you to Ephesians chapter 2 where God lays out his dream of these two entities, his chosen people and his church becoming one. Ephesians chapter 2. Take some time and read that this afternoon. It's a great passage of scripture. Uh, But look at this, verse... uh, Verse 21 uh, talks about, uh, just think how lavish, the the 12 gates were 12 pearls. And uh, each gate was made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. The lavishness of God, for whom there are no limits, And this place that he's preparing, the the main street is like pure gold, like glass. And look, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. No church, no temple. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. No knuckleheads in heaven. You don't have to lock your doors in heaven. 
Isn't this, I mean, have you ever contemplated and, and thought about this? Uh, I get the picture of this diamond city hanging over the old Jerusalem, hanging like a chandelier. And the, the glory of God is its light, and the earth is still spinning, and it takes the place of the sun. The glory of God itself is what lights the earth as it spins and, and gives it its light. And the nations somehow are, are coming and paying tribute and worshiping, and it illumines the whole renovated earth. I think it's beyond our imagination. But God does give us something to chew on. Look at the next uh, chapter, verse, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, the first few verses. Then the angel showed me the river, the river of life. You know that song, the river of life? Sets my feet a-dancing, right? Uh, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night, and there will be no need of uh, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. Can you picture this? Can you imagine this? And one more thing. Um, if you go back uh, to chapter 21, verse 15 and 16, um, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod. How big is this place? Right? The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, diamond, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass, the foundations of the city were decorated with every precious stone imaginable. And there's a description of the different uh, foundations, the names of the apostles and the foundations with all the precious stones and, and so on and so forth. When you do the math, when you take this city and you do the math and put it into our terms, the city is about uh, 1,400 miles square. 1,400 miles is about from Maine to Florida. 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep, and 1,400 miles high. And if you were to, um, if you were to say, okay, uh, if this city has floors in it, although I think it's going to have a huge atrium in the middle that has this river of life and the trees and everything else, but anyway, if you were to just say that, that there were floors, and if you were to say that, okay, let's put the floors like a mile apart so that you have some headroom. You know, a mile apart. So if you did that and you put the floors and you did the math, you would figure out that in this city, there is 13 times more square miles than the entire surface of the earth today, including the surface under the water. 13 times, and that's if they're a mile apart. 
13 times the square. This is a big place that Jesus has been preparing. This is a huge city. There's room for you. This city, you know, if you think about it, how big it is, and, and it hangs in space and so forth. Like 1 Corinthians, Paul, um, Paul said this about uh, uh, that uh, when we try to imagine and, and, and think about it in 1 Corinthians you know, chapter 1, he said this, No eye has ever seen and no ear has ever heard and no mind has been able to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I hate it when people stop reading right there. They say, well, I guess nobody can imagine, nobody can conceive, nobody can get an idea. The very next verse says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. I would tell you this morning that as we're reading these passages of scripture and thinking about this, if in your heart, your heart is starting to beat a little faster, and you're saying, you know what, this is going to be really fabulous. I am going to stop looking backwards, start looking forward. And if that's happening in your heart, I'm telling you, it's because the spirit of the living God is revealing this to you that it's true. If you're sitting here and you're looking at your watch and you're saying, when is this guy going to be quiet? I would say you better check your salvation because the Spirit of God is the one who reveals this reality to us in a way that we can believe it. If you tell this to a secular person who's you know, an unbeliever, they're just going to think you're crazy. They don't get it. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the only one who can reveal this. And if you believe it, it's because the Spirit of God in you is prompting you to believe him and to be looking forward to this great day. Let me just say in closing that I think uh, people are always looking for something new. Isn't that true? I mean, we're always looking for something new, some new thing. We're always searching for some uh, utopia, some new thrill, some new invention, some new high, some you know, new peace, some new government, whatever it is. We're always looking for everything to get better. Everybody has that, you know? And I got to thinking, you know, what if that longing for something better, for perfection, is something that God has given us? And instead of trying to kill it off, and, and instead of going around saying, well, we should just be satisfied, maybe we should say, uh, you know, God is going to say to us something like this, of course you're not satisfied. Of course you have this yearning for perfection. I made you to be like me, and I'm perfect. And I'm creating this place where perfection and righteousness is going to be, and you will never find satisfaction until you find it in Christ. And along with that comes this promise of this future new heaven and new earth and this place that God has prepared for those who love him. You will never find perfection in this life. But why kill the desire? Have that desire fulfilled in what God is doing in preparation for us to meet him. You know, what if we aren't ever to be satisfied, but we're to be looking forward to that city whose architect and whose builder is God? And what if God is like saying, of course, of course, I want you to only find that satisfaction where you'll ultimately find it in me. And so let me just read these last couple of verses. Revelation 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can take them to the bank. You can stake your life on this fact. And he said to me, it is done. I am, this is Jesus talking, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost 
from the spring of the water of life. If you come to me, you will find that satisfaction. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my child. What a great promise. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we pause here this morning because you are our God. And it's great that you've revealed that, that this wasn't even left to a prophet or an apostle, but that Jesus himself revealed to us what's in our future. And what a great privilege, what a great advantage it is to live our life knowing what's coming. And Father, thank you for this promise that after all this destruction of the day of the Lord, there's going to be this reconstruction, this renovation, this remake of the world that we know where everything will finally be right and where people will be righteous. And what a great place it will be. And there will be forever. And there will be serving you. And you're, who knows, Father, all that you have in store for eternity. But I pray in the meantime, Father, that we would come back to that question that Peter asked right in the middle of this whole passage. What kind of people should we be? And I pray that we would find ourselves looking forward, that we would be optimists, that we would be sharing the good news at any chance we get to help people understand, Father, that this is not all there is. And uh, to not limit our quest for perfection and for righteousness and for things to be perfect to this life, but rather, Father, to focus on what you've given us in Christ and this great hope, Father, of his return and this new heaven, new earth, new existence that you will provide for us someday. What a great day it'll be to be together in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well,